Hey there, it's Gary Parish. It's a Wednesday, March 29th. Welcome back to the Ion College Basketball Podcast. I got Matt Norlander with me. He is in Phoenix for the Final Four. I'm in North Mississippi, just because this is where I live. I will be in Phoenix for the Final Four tomorrow. Norlander, how's Phoenix? Is it just as pleasant as I imagine? Uh, it is It is good. Uh, technically, I am in Glendale right now. This ah, is whatever. not... This is not, no, no. Well, here's the deal. This is not the first time that I am podcasting from this location. I'm actually uh, visiting some family real quick. And yes, I am I'm squeezing in a, this is how much I love the listeners, squeezing in a podcast while um, getting in some family time. Because honestly, Thursday through the rest of the week will obviously be very, very busy. But I stayed here back when the tournament came through Phoenix five years ago. It was when um, Michigan, Louisville, and who else was in that? Florida was in a, was all in that regional Marquette. And so I did podcasts uh, from the very room that I am in right now back then. So uh, it feels good to kind of come full circle. It is beautiful out here, Parrish. Uh, in, a, in a pure, just cosmic instance of coincidence, I'm getting out of the shuttle that brought me from the airport to the media hotel. And who do I see walking into the hotel at that very second? Please, God. Jeff. Jeff. Goodman. Oh, no. <laughs> and it was not Devin Downey. You got me so excited for a second. Shouts to Devin Downey. Shouts to Chester, South Carolina. Shouts to Terry Teagle. Goodman, that's disappointing. So disappointing, right? He's got these goofy-looking sunglasses on. He rented a car, though, uh, which means I'll probably be driving it. Um, <laughs> You're always but, the, uh, That's the thing about the final. That's why we love you at the final four. You can always be our designated driver. But that was in the pre-Uber days. We really don't need you anymore. I know. Well, here's the other thing. So it's it's great weather, and Goodman's like, we got to have this thing here every year. And I'm like, well, just hold on on that because and this is so hashtag writer problem. But whatever, we're writers, and I'm going to talk about it real quick here. It is spread out, so that will be the from a from a logistical challenge in terms of both getting to the stadium for travel, uh, seeing what traffic might come, and then the the media hotels are are different from the downtown area where the coaches' hotels are at, and none of that's near Scottsdale, which is where you kind of want to be after dinner and all that. So, it is a pretty spread out area, but it is a uh, it is surreal to be covering a Final Four and wearing shorts. Uh, but great weather out here. Can't wait for you to get here. And yes, I can't make any promises with Devin Downey, but I'm gonna tomorrow is when I'm gonna basically try and get this accomplished. We had someone. I think you saw this, GP, but we had someone hit us up on Twitter and basically say, I, I, I can get you Devin Downey's number if you need it. <laughs> did, I, I'm did you fairly respond? confident that I can get it as well, <laughs> but I love that this is becoming a community effort, and so we're going to try and I, – I truly, truly, truly would love to do this in person. If we can make this – if we can turn this on Friday, I think it would be an awesome thing and a historic moment for the podcast, but if that is for some reason not doable and he's able to be you know, gotten by phone – We'll see. So for listeners of the podcast, we'll just kind of keep you in suspense. And I kind of almost want to be like, if we get it and you and you listen to Friday's episode, you'll find out right then and there whether it's just going to be us and massive disappointment or if we finally get this turned around. But uh, that remains to be seen. Um, I'm very anxious about this. I'm looking forward to getting out to Phoenix. I uh, It is spread out. And Again, these are writer problems or just – but the Final Four is so much better when it's in a, a place that's uh, small and pro- you know small in terms of square miles. Like Indianapolis is great. Um, New Orleans is great. San Antonio is good, not great, but good. Um, St. Louis is even really good. And what you want – and I've said this a million times – what you want is all the hotels, all the bars and restaurants, and the dome all in the same place. Place within walking distance. That is Indianapolis. That is New Orleans. 
it is mostly St. Louis. It is mostly San Antonio. Because I remember when the Final Four was in Detroit a few years ago, and it was like literally snowing during the Final Four. Like, I, like we walked outside, it was snow. And uh, somebody asked me about the Final Four. Like I was on a radio station somewhere. It might have been in Detroit. And they said, well, so what did you make of the Final Four? And I said, listen, like Detroit's a great city. Like I'm from Memphis. I'm not the type that, you know, turns my nose up at certain cities. Like I hate it when I hear folks from my hometown, like, I got a buddy of mine. He's the play-by-play voice of the of the Grizzlies, named Eric Castleton, and he's like always talking about Cleveland, like how much he hates Cleveland. And I'm like, you know, like if you're from LA, you can talk down to Cleveland, or if you're from like you know Chicago or New York, you can talk down to Cleveland, San Diego, I guess. But like you can't be from Memphis talking down to Cleveland. Like we're Memphis for crying out loud. So, Goodman was crushing Memphis. I did, I swear to on my son's life out of nowhere because he was there for the Sweet Sixteen. He was killing memphis earlier today i was like really killing it seems like a good city he's like it's it's awful it's terrible i'm throwing him under the bus right now i couldn't believe it well see i would think it's a great city to cover regional because it 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 qualifies for exactly what i'm talking about all the the hotel the main hotel the weston the one i pulled strings to get him in by the way i legit like text message the general manager of the entire weston and why, why why would I do this for Goodman to begin with? Like I I I, I have no idea. Yeah, like I should have just said no. I don't know how to get you in. But I was like, you know what? You need some help. I'll help you. I text the general manager. He clears me a room for Goodman at the Westin, which is literally across the street from FedEx Forum. Like you you have to walk out of your hotel and walk you know to, from the from the Westin door to the front door of FedEx Forum is is a hundred yards. I mean it is it you cross you cross one street and you're there. Bill Street is. Like just to your left, it's like it's really like the FedEx Forum is on Bill Street. So you've got all the bars, restaurants, uh, the arena, and the hotel right there. Like, what's not the like? I'm not trying to tell you Memphis is New York City or anything like that, but to, to host a regional, as long as you're in the good hotel, that's the problem with Memphis. There aren't enough great hotels downtown. But I got him in a great hotel downtown. I, that, that disappoints me. He should have enjoyed Memphis. If he didn't have a good time in Memphis, that's his own fault. I, I, oh, I, I know why he didn't have a good time in Memphis. He went out with my wife on Saturday night. Like that's what, like, like well yeah because he went out to like my wife was with somebody for a birthday party she's like Goodman texts me say he's gonna come meet up because because he hates all the writers <laughs> so random <laughs> so I said okay so he went out to like he went out to Midtown and went out with a bunch of like thirty five year old women that's what's boring go to Bill Street and hang out with the twenty one year old women dummy. I just don't get it. But anyway, the point you're making is an accurate one. The ideal situation for Final Fours is that you can walk to basically pretty much everything. Everyone's centrally located. This is the first time a Final Four has ever been in Phoenix and in the state of Arizona. It's the first West Coast Final Four since Seattle in 95. But it is a cool vibe. But yes, it is It is spread out. That will be just you know part of uh, the day-to-day challenge with that kind of stuff. There's no, there's no doubt about it. Um, getting from here to there to doing stuff. And if you're a fan, if you're listening to this and you're getting ready to come here, I think you know where you're staying will be dependent upon how good of a time that you have, or just how easy it'll be uh, on a day-to-day basis. Just because everything isn't within you know a three-block radius. I think I was told we're staying like 30 minutes away from the dome. I guess they call it a dome, the stadium. So we're like 30 minutes away from that, which is just listen. None of these are big problems, but in, in, in if you're in Indianapolis for Final Four, you're not 30 minutes away from anything. If you're in New Orleans from a Final Four, you just walk everywhere. So this is a different setup. But the weather's nice, and I will take that. I'm looking forward to get there. Um, Phoenix is an American city that I haven't spent much time in. I've been there, but I haven't spent much time there at all. I've been there, I think, maybe two times for a handful of days. So it's it's at least an unfamiliar city to me. So I'm looking – 
I'm looking forward to it. I'm on a first flight out of Memphis, Tennessee uh, tomorrow morning. Let's turn our attention to basketball. And by basketball, I mean death threats. Kentucky, you might have heard, lost a game in the Elite Eight on Sunday afternoon at FedEx Forum in downtown Memphis. Luke May hit a shot at the buzzer. There was some controversial calls, questionable calls, if you will, uh, throughout the game. John Higgins, longtime official, really good official, uh, if you ask other officials, they'll tell you John Higgins is one of the, the better ones, if not one of the best ones, uh, made some questionable calls or his, uh, uh, and, and got some Kentucky players in foul trouble. And then Kentucky loses the game. And then he has a roofing business. I was completely unaware of this, by the way. I've known John for a long time. I didn't know he had a roofing business. I guess we've never had that conversation. But uh, they overrun it on Facebook with like one-star reviews and made-up awful reviews like really doing you know actual damage to his company because i don't know about you but like when i shop or when i look at restaurants or shop on amazon like i am influenced by whether something's five stars or one star like if if i'm looking at a a luggage set for instance on amazon.com i mentioned that because i just had to buy one few few weeks ago um you know, if it says two stars, I just I won't even buy it because I assume it's crap. And so they had overrun his Facebook uh, business page so much with one star reviews that the it looked like a one star company. It's like that's doing real damage, uh, but that's not illegal. That's just like bad. That just means you're a bad person. Uh, but it's not illegal. Uh, what is illegal is like making death threats against people, and they had to bring in law enforcement uh, to to like handle this situation because folks were calling his office, calling his home. And like literally threatening to kill him. No harm done physically at this point. Fingers crossed. But what do you make of all this? Kentucky fans ruining a man's business and threatening to kill him over some questionable calls in Sunday's Elite Eight game. This is the worst of the worst. And if you're a Kentucky fan that's thinking, maybe it's some other fan base that's doing this to smear Kentucky's reputation. And the Kentucky, no, get over yourself. This is obviously Kentucky fans. There aren't. Louisville fans that are going to be doing this and thinking that they should be calling up John Higgins and making death threats. It's not happening. It's happening from the lunatic fringe of Kentucky's fan base. Kentucky's fan base in a lot of ways is awesome. It's the most passionate, but in a lot of ways that has some serious drawbacks and there absolutely is a lunatic fringe. I mean, there's just no doubt about it. This is obviously well known within the sport and it's something that coaches and referees and media have to deal with. Um, Kentucky fans, in a weird way, have this persecution complex. They think that the NCAA selection committee is out to get their program more than any other. They seem to be under this misguided notion that Kentucky is continually put in uh, situations in the tournament that you know just go against them in more ways than any other program ever seems to ever face. Uh, bad calls happen. You move on. Doing this is just so far over the line. And really... From Higgins's perspective, I mean, you're absolutely right. He's considered among the best in the sport. Um, if you know an official's name, it means that he's really, really good. And if you only know an official's name, it's because you might be so used to seeing him on your television and him working a lot of games. And why would that be? Well, I'll tell you what, because college coaches, uh, they know who the good officials are. And they want those guys working the biggest games. And the biggest coaches, you know, obviously are at the biggest programs. Those schools are good on a year-to-year basis more frequently than anyone else. So the fact that you know John Higgins' name is not a bad thing. It is a very good thing. I know the, the adage goes you shouldn't be able to know an official's name or, you know, shouldn't be able to pay attention to him in the game and whatnot. But he his reputation is very, very good. And for this to be happening is an awful look for college basketball in general. But just this is not – this is just – I wish I could say I was surprised, Parrish, when I saw this story. 
um, I believe uh, Goodman actually helped co-report off this. Um, I didn't really talk to him about it, but um, I, I when I saw it, I wasn't like blown away by it. I'm like, yeah, that actually that kind of doesn't surprise me. In fairness. Kentucky fans can do this. In fairness to Kentucky fans, because I know they get irritated, the good ones and the reasonable ones, when people talk about Kentucky fans as if they're all the same person. It, as, it's just as frustrating when people talk about the media, like it's all one thing. Like, you know, the media does this. Well, there's a lot of different kinds of media. Like there's, sure. you know, there, there's, um, you know, like there's Fox News, there's MSNBC, there's everything in between. Like, uh, the media is not one thing. So when people go, well, you know how the media is. Well, which media are you talking about? Let's get specific. Are you talking about me or are you talking about, um, you know, somebody else? Uh, like, and so uh, if I get frustrated by that, if I were a Kentucky fan, I can completely understand how I might be frustrated by people saying, you know how Kentucky fans are. Because there's probably some guy who loves the Wildcats uh, for his entire life, graduated from the school, watched the game on Sunday, watched Luke May hit a shot, said, man, that's terrible, and then went and had dinner with his family and got up the next morning and went to work and everything's fine. There are reasonable Kentucky fans out there. Uh, the thing about Kentucky fans is that there's more of them than there are anybody else. Like, there's more Kentucky fans than there are anything else, far as I far as I can tell. And so when you have more of anything, you've got more of everything. you got more reasonable fans. you got more crazy fans. you got more great fans. you got more smart fans. you got more dumb fans. you got more of everything. A little bit like Texas and football prospects, right? Well, why does Texas have so many great uh, football prospects? Because they got so many great – they've got fo- a lot of football players. So they got they got tons of great football players. they got tons of bad football players. they got tons of average football players. Kentucky fans are the same way. So – Kentucky fans, swear to God, hand to heart, we ain't talking to all of you. Uh, but there are no some, but there are some of you who are absolutely bananas, and 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 this is evidence of of that. I mean, like to really like genuinely try to harm a man's business over calls that happened in a basketball game. Like you got to be a bad person to do that, and not just a bad person, but kind of a crazy person to do that. Um, you know, I I, I had got in a te- text message from a, a college basketball referee today that I know, and he said, first off, John's one of the best officials we got. So, like, the idea that he's become the poster boy for this is bananas. Secondly, um, he, he's, his roofing company is, is wildly successful. He doesn't need to officiate basketball games to make a living. He does it because he loves it. He does it because he wants to do it. And to, to, to think that he has any sort of motives uh, other than to just get the call right every single time is, is A, disrespectful, B, wrong and see to know nothing about the man and i would say that not just about john but about officials in general i'm not telling you there's never been a guy out there who's had a grudge against a coach i'm not even going to tell you there's never been a guy out there who's never benefited financially from a call one way or another like there has been a gambling scandal in the nba i think it would be um foolish to pretend that that's never happened in college basketball somewhere given there are 351 teams as opposed to 30 that means there's 351 teams playing games as opposed to just 30. There's way more games, way more officials. They get they make less money than the NBA guys. I can see a scenario where somebody got into a financial bind somewhere and got himself out of it by, you know, helping a team shape points here or there. Like I'm not saying there's never been a guy with, with motives that aren't pure. But for the most part, especially the great referees, you know what they want to do? They don't want to screw John Calipari. They don't want to help Roy Williams. You know what they want to do? They want to get the call right every single time as often as possible because they're graded on a call by call basis. Like you can't get to the final four unless you check out a certain way. 
And so uh, when you know that there are HD cameras on you, 50 of them at all times, and 50 of them on the play on every play at all times, you don't want to make the incorrect call purposely. Like, does that make any sense to anybody? Why? What is the motivation behind? It only makes you look bad when you get a call wrong. It, it, as much as you might think it hurts John Calipari or helps John Calipari or hurts Roy Williams or helps Roy Williams, it just really more than anything else, it makes you look bad when you're wrong. And so I don't believe yeah, guys yeah. on that stage want to be wrong. I don't believe John Higgins wants to be wrong. If he missed a call, it's because human error and this is a hard job to have. But that's really the long and the short of it. Like the idea that you would think he was up to something, like that makes you kind of crazy. Yeah, I got a little to add here because you're on the money. And without a doubt, I mean, honestly, I'd go to say like 95% of Kentucky fans are great and reasonable. It's just the 5% are, are just so far off the freaking reservation that it really can smear the reputation of a, of a fan base. And Kentucky has more crazy people or irrational people or more knee-jerk kind of kind of types in, in its fan base than the other one. And there are plenty of fan bases that have this, but they just don't have as many. And it's a bad look, and it's unfortunate. By the way, it's a worthy topic to be talking about if, with this happening um, because it's it shouldn't be something we should be discussing because it shouldn't be happening. But the fact that an official has his his livelihood impugned like this in in a way which is by the way it's like what can you do other than to take the freaking facebook page down and take it off the yelp and stuff like you can't regulate it you're gonna have to get people at facebook and at yelp to filter out this kind of stuff eventually but there's nothing that you can really do uh it's the one area where if you happen to have any sort of business in the public realm that's that's open to subject you know to peer-to-peer review or or general consensus rating systems um because because higgins was not say a principal you know or a high school history teacher or something like that that he had this this you know this business that was out there um it kind of made for the unfortunate perfect storm there um i will say that this is interesting on twofold because i do think I do think John Calipari probably fed into it a little bit with him publicly criticizing the way the game was called, like in a pretty aggressive or passive aggressive way, which is typically the way John does things in a passive aggressive way. So he sort of fed into this. I will also give him credit for, you know, earlier today, he sent out a tweet that says, I always brag that we have the classiest fans in the country. Let's make sure we remain that way. Even after a tough loss, that was his signal to his fan base. Yo, you took this too far. Uh, calm it down. And um, I, I do think uh, he, he, if I'm going to suggest that he might have, um, uh, you know, not ignited it, but poured some, uh, you know, gasoline in its direction by being so public against the officials uh, on Sunday afternoon. And I think again on his radio show in the subsequent day or two, uh, then he deserves some credit for trying to end it today with a, a tweet. And assuming that Kentucky fans, for the most part, follow his lead, perhaps this will. Um, this will all be over. Um, there is another thing that I wanted to ask you about. Because John's quote after the game was as follows. You know, it's amazing that we were in that game where they practically fouled out my team. Amazing that we had a chance. And it is undeniable that he had players in foul trouble Sunday afternoon. And it is undeniable that without that, uh, Malik Monk would have played more minutes than he did. De'Aaron Fox would have played more minutes than he did. Malik Monk played 30. Uh, on the season, Malik averaged 
32.1, and that was with some blowouts where he was sitting down at the end. So he didn't play as many minutes as he does on average, or he should have in a game of this magnitude, in a game that was this close. De'Aaron Fox played 28 minutes uh, on the season. He played 30 minutes a game. Uh, again, some of that was because he was sitting uh, during uh, crunch time because there was no crunch time because of blowouts. And I believe he suffered an injury early in a game somewhere along the lines, which skews the average a little bit. Either way, seems very, very clear. He only played 28 minutes. He would have played more without the foul trouble. Um, same thing goes for Derek Willis. He had 21 minutes on the court. Willis, Monk, and Fox all finished with four fouls. John Calipari is not the only coach who does this, but he is, but, but he does, he is one of the coaches who does this. If you get two fouls in the first half, you sit down. And uh, he'll bring some guys in every once in a while in certain situations. But for the most part, uh, that is what he subscribes to. And then if you get a third one early, you sit down. And if you get a fourth one early, you sit down until the sixth minute or so, uh, six minutes left in the game and whatever. In other words, it frustrates me just as much when college coaches never, almost never, take advantage of a two-for-one situation at the end of a half, end of a game. This, that they have these hard and fast rules about foul trouble, as they label it, and they end up not maximizing the time that players could be could spend on a court, in, in the, in with the intent of making sure they're there at the end of the game, without recognizing often the end of the game won't matter if you don't play your best players, you know as many minutes as you can possibly play them. Now, clearly in this game they were there right at the end. I mean they were there till the final second, um, but. I wish somebody would do a study on this. How often do players have their minutes limited, key players, in a game because of what their coach perceives to be foul trouble relative to how often those players actually foul out? Because I think what you'll find an overwhelming majority of the time is that key players who get fouls early end up playing fewer minutes than they ought to because a coach is concerned about something that doesn't usually happen and that's foul out. Does that bother you at all? Well, um, I think it does need – as you're doing this, I'm going to try and bring up Pomeroy uh, looked at this in the preseason in terms of what coaches pull the trigger fast. Now, it's hard to determine this because in terms of like what would happen because you're playing the what-if game, in, in some ways, like if you keep them in, you know, what would they have – what would they have done when they've gotten a, a certain foul in, in a certain situation? I am all for not pulling guys out early. Um, I, I, I when they get two fouls in the that's first half, that's right. Uh, <laughs> but it's it's here we go. Uh, is this what I? Here we go. I got it from July twelfth of last year. Just real quick, GP, because he looked at this. The coach uh that did the the, the least trigger happy of a, of a mainstream coach with this is jim Beheim. he's fourth some of that's got some of that's got to be because of playing zone yes uh our man greg campy is five randy bennett at st mary's was eight i'm just gonna scroll here because i i bet you bray is 17 i thought i remember seeing shashevsky was like near the bottom of this i'm going to the bottom how about this greg marshall is near the bottom 312 um Archie Miller, 304. Uh, Tom Izzo, 294. 
I know Shashevsky. I'm almost positive Shashevsky was down here near the bottom. Tony Bennett's 305. Um, I'm not going to go through everything here, but um, but yeah, I would like to see. I know Shashevsky there he is 43, so he actually leans more. I had that reversed. Um, he's closer to the top. So you could argue that the Hall of Famers that are have the most trust in their players are Bayheim and Shashevsky amongst all. It could also active. be, and again, I'm, we're totally off the top of our head here, but how much of it is that Shashevsky knows that he's Mike Shashevsky? He's going to be in a good spot with the officials, and if you let them know, hey, I'm I'm the GOAT, my point guard has two fouls, don't give him a third in the first half, like that might have an impact on an official, right? I mean, it could. Maybe, and by the way, yeah, this is the last previous seven years' worth of data. Of coaching data with this, so he didn't just look at 2015, 2016. Right. This is a this is a pattern here, my, which is really good info. Right. My um, my question is I, I just, more. I just wish that the yeah. coaches had a little more faith in this, um, because the benefits could definitely be there. GP, I think what you're asking for, we need that kind of data in order to convince a lot of other coaches otherwise. You you basically tell coaches, okay, I understand you sit a kid down with two fouls in the first half. And that if he picks up his third early, you sit him down again. If he picks up his fourth around the 13-minute mark, you sit him down again. But playing him that way, which is just sort of this, this, this probably rooted in no actual data. It's just like a gut thing, a fill thing. Handling a kid with foul trouble in that way, um, yes, it prevents him from fouling out. But it also prevents him from playing as many minutes as he otherwise would play. And instead of getting 33 minutes out of Malik Monk, you're only getting 30. Instead of getting 34 minutes out of De'Aaron Fox, you're only getting 28. And if you were to be, if you were to maximize their minutes, guess what? You might not be in a final minute situation, one possession game with North Carolina. You might be up six in the final minute, even if Malik Monk has actually fouled out by then. I just think there's, like, I would like to see somebody do that study. How often do guys have their minutes limited in a game, key players? because of foul trouble, but then never actually foul out, which by definition means you did not maximize the minutes they could have spent on the court. Because coaches always say things like, well, you know, um, foul trouble sent my guy to the bench, or foul trouble, you know, I had to play without my point guard. No, that's not true. Nothing sends your players to the bench other than you and a fifth foul. That's it. A third foul doesn't send anybody to the bench unless you want them to. A fourth foul sends nobody to the bench unless you want them to. And it almost, like, it reminds me, and this isn't apples to apples, I don't guess. But, like, when a baseball team loses in the 11th inning and their closer never came in, like, what, what are you saving him for? Like, what, okay, well, you know, we saved him for a save opportunity. Why? And we saw them get away from this in last year's postseason. Uh, Terry Francona being the best in Cleveland. Like, he was willing to use Andrew Miller in the fifth inning. Like, we're going to use Andrew Miller wherever we have to use Andrew Miller in a high-pressure situation because if we don't get out of that, even if it's in the fifth, the ninth inning might not matter. So, like, let's use him now to ensure the ninth inning matters. Um, I don't understand why you don't use basketball players in the exact same way. It, it, you, know, you sit a guy down with two fouls. Your point, let's say you're starting point guard, two fouls, first half. And, 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 like, you sit him down the final 12 minutes of the half. And then you're down 15 at halftime. Okay, good. He can play a lot in the second half. But congratulations, the game's over. What was the point of that? I would just like, I would like to see, I don't know that the average college basketball coach subscribes to that. And again, just think of it on like, how often do you see relevant players get sit down with quote unquote foul trouble, compare that number, whatever it is to how time, how many times you see relevant players foul out of a game. I mean, I, the, the ratio must be bananas because the Kentucky North Carolina game is a perfect example. 
Derek Willis, Malik Monk, and De'Aaron Fox, three starters, had their minutes limited by foul trouble. None of them actually fouled out of the game. That means, by definition, John Calipari didn't maximize their minutes. I know that we're totally off topic in the in the week of the Final Four, but that's just something that has always bugged me, and I thought that Sunday game was a great example of why exactly that 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 bugs me. And I keep waiting for, like, whoever the smartest, youngest, analytics-minded coaches in the country to figure this out and actually start handling his rotation um, with a you know with a foot planted in this this type of uh, outlook. Yeah, and we might end up having a situation this weekend at the Final Four where this where this crops up. So, who knows? Maybe this discussion comes into play if Sundarius Thornwell gets two fouls, or you see Joel Berry or Justin Jackson get two fouls. Obviously, if Dylan Brooks or Tyler Dorsey got into foul trouble, or Nigel Williams Goss, this would be something to keep an eye on if they were uh, hit with a quick whistle with, say, 12 minutes to go in the first half. I'm glad you mentioned Sundarius Thornwell because just another pet peeve. While we're getting all this off my chest, um, I've heard multiple coaches over the past few days reference South Carolina and say, hey, listen, that's a great example of you don't have to go out and get blue-chip players. You don't have to go out and get five-star guys. You don't have to go out and get McDonald's All-Americans. If you get a group of guys who really buy in and, and grow up together – and, and commit to each other, then special things can happen. And I get that that's mostly true. But by the way, Sundarius Thorne was a top 40 national recruit. P.J. Dozier was a McDonald's All-American. So, <laughs> so like, like the rest of those guys on that roster are like borderline top 100 guys. I got you. But the two best players for South Carolina, even if this is one of the great Cinderella stories in recent history, even if they are attached to a power conference, the two best players on South Carolina are, are both like five-star recruits who could have basically played anywhere. So, like, don't trick yourself into thinking this is George Mason's uh, roster. Like, they got, yeah. two, they got two studs. Their two best players were high school studs who could have basically played uh, anywhere. How's this for a segue? Speaking of studs, we uh, yeah. earlier this week um, announced our uh, player of the year, CBS Sports. CBS Sports coach of the year, CBS Sports uh, freshman of the year. I think the All-Americans are going to be – published tomorrow we can talk about them now the player of the year we did ultimately go with kansas's frank mason and i know kansas fans are out there screaming right now told you gp and uh i guess i would say this every week that i said caleb swanigan swanigan should have been the national player of the year i genuinely believe that that was still right um but uh, this is why we wait uh because we want to have a, a a clear picture of everything and even though kansas got Bounced in the Elite Eight, and that was surprising and disappointing. Frank was still pretty good in that Elite Eight game. He was awesome in the Sweet 16 game. He was awesome in the game against Purdue and Caleb Swanigan. And though I do think you could make an argument for Swanigan, I actually think you could make an argument for Sundarius Thornwell, um, I don't disagree. The National Player of the Year should be uh, Frank Mason. Freshman of the Year, we went with Lonzo Ball. I don't think that needs much explanation. He completely transformed a program. Uh, they got bounced in the Sweet 16, but they were a legitimate top 10 team all year long. And Coach of the Year, we went with Mark Few. And there are a lot of good options there. You could go with Chris Collins because, like, he's somebody who literally did something at a school that had never been done before. I guess you could say the same thing about Mark Few because Gonzaga had never you been to the Final the Four. You could say the exact same thing about Mark Few and you could say the exact same thing about Frank Martin. Sure. Um, but, like, so, yeah, there are – I think there's more good options for Coach of the Year than there are Freshman of the Year or Player of the Year. Like, if there's three options for Player of the Year, maybe four – uh, and there's one option, really, I think just one option for freshman of the year. And uh, there, like, there might be seven or eight like legitimate options for coach of the year. Uh, but I think it, I think you and I agreed it was, it should be Mark Few. 
I'm firmly on Mark Few. I would even say that he has enough there because of the uh, the one seed, only one loss, getting to the Final Four, and we tallied our votes after the regional finals were done. Um, I would listen to other arguments for other coaches, but you could not convince me, um, anyone but Few. I was, I was basically in on Few as being coach of the year at the start of uh, the tournament. Josh Jackson and Markel Fultz are the only guys that would have a remote chance against Lonzo Ball for freshman of the year. We did not seriously discuss either of them. Uh, Fultz, whether it was legitimate injury or just kind of saving his body, he did not play a number of games down the stretch. And had he played in every single game for a bad Washington team, he actually would have had a case if his numbers continued to be really, really, really good. He would have had a case. Because across the board, he was was the better – GP, I'll say this because I had to do this every damn week. I understand. Um, he was a better player than Ball. But the thing is, and and I and I do try and differentiate with what we do with player of the year and freshman of the year because with freshmen, you're not expected to necessarily turn a program around. But I'll say this. like The fact that Lonzo did this and he did have more talent, there's no doubt about it. He had way more talent around than Fultz. Um, Fultz just took a dip, and then his team didn't even play in the postseason, and that definitely hurt him. And Josh Jackson was really, really good, but he didn't. He was not good enough considering he had the National Player of the Year on his team to overcome it. My last note is that, to my surprise, when I researched this, Frank Mason's the only he's the only second player in Kansas history to win a National Player of the Year award. If you looked at the traditional six to come from the USBWA and the NABC, you know, Wooden, Naismith, all that stuff. Only Danny Manning's done, which was kind of surprising to me. Uh, Mason's done it, and in that way, I mean, you can really make a case that I know it doesn't almost feel like it in the moment, but if you don't let what's happened at the pro level kind of color you, like, Frank Mason has a case as a top-five Kansas player in history. When you look at him winning the player of the year this year, I don't know if that's for sure the thing, but only one other dude's won it, and he was pretty freaking awesome this season. So I just wonder if in in the moment people are even underrating the significance to that player within that program. The Frank Mason thing is incredible. Like, okay, he was a part of a six-player recruiting class, and I know you know this. Um, the class was Andrew Wiggins, Joel Embiid, Wayne Selden, Brandon Green, and Connor Frankamp, who, of course, now is at, at Wichita State. Uh, Frank is the only one who lasted four years in the program. And he was the least heralded of the group by a significant margin. The other five were all top 50 recruits. Two of them were Wiggins and Embiid, for crying out loud. But all five, Green, Frank Camp, Wiggins, Embiid, and Wayne Selden, all top 50 national recruits. And then Frank Mason, 5'9", like 100 and nothing pounds, ranked outside of the top 100. And I thought this... I think most people thought this. He'll never play at Kansas. Like, why would he ever play at Kansas? And it's not just that he turned into this. He played 16 minutes a game as a freshman. Like, he was re- he was a rotation player from the start. Got a little better as a sophomore, better as a junior. And then as a senior, I, I believe he became the first Big 12 player in history to average more than 20 points and more than five assists in the same season. Uh, his story is a, is a wild story. And, um, yeah, I, I, he's a worthwhile national player of the year. And, uh, yeah, I think based on a college career, you could say he's one of the best Jayhawks of all time. And there have obviously been some some amazing Jayhawks. Before we get out of here, the first team All-Americans, it was Frank Mason, Lonzo Ball, Josh Hart, Sendarius Thornwell, Caleb Swanigan. We've talked about all the other ones. Thornwell is where we're going to be obviously different from every other All-American team that exists. Even I'm good with that. I am too because 
it is true that Thornwell has been unbelievable in the Cincinnati tournament. I think you can reasonably say he's been the best player in the Cincinnati tournament. He's averaging like 25 and 8 in the Cincinnati tournament. He's averaging 21 and 7 on the year for a team that's 23 and 7 with him in the lineup. So he hasn't been thought of or talked about this way because South Carolina hasn't been thought of or talked about this way. South Carolina got zero top 25 votes in the preseason, zero top 25 votes the day after Selection Sunday. Uh, they struggled down the stretch, lost six of their final nine before the NCAA tournament. But still, big picture, they were basically a top 30 team in America. Now they're in the Final Four, and their best player has been awesome. Sundarius Thornwell, and I felt bad leaving Nigel Williams-Goss off. He was the first cut that we made. But I, I think when we publish this tomorrow, there will be a lot of attention to it, I assume. And uh, I don't think you can intelligently argue against Sundarius Thornwell, given that we waited to take in everything that happened before the Final Four. He looks like a first-team All-American to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm fine with it. Now, I personally would have gone with Williams-Goss. Now, Williams-Goss, by the way, was a second-team AP All-American, so we're not totally going against the grain right. there. Uh, only because Williams-Goss is also in the Final Four. But I don't have an issue with Thornwell. He was the SEC Player of the Year. He's, I mean, he's the best defensive player in that league, and he's been really good. And, and obviously the story of him you know, rocketing South Carolina to just a historic season in a Final Four appearance, he has the numbers. He has the value. He has made it to the final weekend in college basketball. I have no issue with this whatsoever. Uh, he has earned it. And this he is the model example of why... As a company, we have insisted on waiting on all our awards until the week of the Final Four because it's the best balance, in my opinion, of encapsulating the entire season. And then if results allow and you sort of need a tiebreaker, you've got what's happened. And we won't. And and this is good because it doesn't. I feel like you'd be a slave to a national championship game result perhaps um this is just it's the it's the perfect sweet spot to get enough postseason influence still taking into account the rest of the entire regular season i love our first team and i think it's very representative i can honestly say i don't really have i don't have quibbles i would have barely and i mean barely had williams goss on the first team over thornwell but i don't have any issue with it gp you know <laughs> i think you know what? Uh, we're awesome, and I think we nailed it. So yeah. I feel like we're awesome, and we nailed it. And if you go look at the uh, All-American teams that other media entities put out, published before conference tournaments or even before the NCAA tournament, a whole lot of them didn't even have Sundarius Stornwell. And when we look back on that in history, and that's what I care about, when you look back in history, uh, the idea of not having Sundarius Stornwell on an All-American team anywhere is going to look silly because he is one of the stars of this college basketball season. Might have taken people a little while to notice – um, but he's there right now. Go find Devin Downey. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna do my best, man. And then uh, obviously we'll be seeing each other tomorrow. And then we for listeners, we'll podcast at some point on Friday. But I will say this: if for whatever reason, like we're told, you can get Devin Downey in person, but it can't happen till Saturday at 11 a.m. Then we're waiting. So uh, we'll see what happens there. I'm gonna go. I'm on the hunt t- starting tonight. I'm literally. I'm gonna just start asking random people. Have you seen Devin Downey walking around here? <laughs> the and hunt, hopefully, you're hunting Devin Downey in Phoenix. They should make a documentary of that. Hunting Devin Downey in Phoenix, Arizona. Hashtag. I love it. Shout out. Have to a safe flight. South yeah, I'll see you tomorrow. I am gonna have a safe flight. Although, in fairness, that's got, I got no control over that. If it's a safe flight or the worst flight ever, 
uh, tragic ending. It won't have anything to do with, with me or my approach to the actual flight, but I appreciate the words. Remember, you can subscribe to the Island College Basketball Podcast on iTunes. It's the best way to get the latest episodes as quickly as possible. Please do that. We will talk to you both from Phoenix, Arizona very, very soon. Till then, take care. <laughs>